Welcome to episode 11 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as our hobby news and latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined by Chris Grimm. What up? And Dave Barker. Good evening. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. Finally, if you do want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Links to all of those are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And I just want to say it is wonderful to be back after a long Christmas break. How are you guys doing? Super duper, Alice Cooper. Thank you very much, fam. Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. I had a good Christmas with the family and done some hobby stuff, so can't complain. Same pretty much. I guess it feels like it's been ages since we've done this because realistically it's been about a month since we last recorded, which yeah. is quite a break for the, you know, the pace we've been going at. But it's just Christmas and family stuff and the, the way we were trying to pin down a recording more or less just before Christmas Day, weren't we? But it, it just didn't quite come together. So It was almost like it's a stupidly busy time of year to do anything at all. Almost as, as though there was some kind of big holiday event in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how some of the content creators still manage to get stuff out there, but uh, there's definitely a little drop um, across them, but, you know, we're back. It's lovely. I had a great new year. It's 2020. It's a new decade. How exciting. <laughs> Ooh, so, so fascinating. One step closer to that 41st millennium. Does that mean I've been playing 40k for the last four decades now? <laughs> you could say it that way. <laughs> It depends if you if you want to think about it that way, but yes, I, I would guess so. <laughs> I've come to terms with the fire. I've been playing 40k for a long time, a long time ago, so that's that's totally cool. <laughs> that just means you've had a long time of awesome experiences. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, but tonight's show is going to involve one little look back, as it were, to last year, and that is because the main topic of tonight is going to be Chapter Approved 2019 Edition. And I have to say, it is a brilliant edition. I genuinely was surprised by almost like how perfectly written for this show this book is. <laughs> the new um, the new format's really really nice, isn't it, for the page layouts? Uh, yeah, it's really nice. Some of it, I mean, um, it's it's just very well take, uh, like spaced out now. Like it's very clear each section of the book is its own section. It's almost like little mini. Supplements or codexes kind of like all together. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah um, it just makes it easy to read as well. Uh, it does. What I found best was the just the fact that it was worth buying this time in the past. I bought Chapter Approved and thought, oh, why did I really buy this? Did I really need to? But uh, <laughs> this time there's so much content and I, I really rather like it. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think it, it is almost like Chapter Approved Narrative Play Edition. That's what it really feels like. There is an enormous. I'm going through it now, and there is an enormous emphasis on it. and It's so good to see. Yeah, yeah. I, I was expecting it to be more just the. Oh yeah, I'll get this, and it'll be sort of like the annual update for match play. Maybe we'll throw a bone for one or two cool narrative things. But actually, I kind of feel like we've sort of been spoiled as narrative players this time around. And to be honest, it's been overdue. 
So I'm not complaining at all, and they've done a really good job with it. Um, so yeah, so basically that's going to be like the main thing that we talk about tonight because there's all sorts of stuff to discuss straight out of chapter approved. Um, so like we're going to be looking at the new drafting scenario system for the open war cards. We're going to be looking at the army generator, which I think is a really cool way of playing a game, especially if you've got a large collection. Um, there's also linked games and parallel battles. Um, and then there is a really cool new update to Maelstrom of War and all the uh, schemes of war for the deck building mechanic they've got in there, which um, it coincidentally was something we thought they should be included in Maelstrom when we were talking about on the last episode. So I was actually really, really validated and surprised to see that. Um, and I think they've done a really good job with it because they've also kind of gone really deep with it they've not just gone oh yeah sure feel free to pick and choose what card you want in your deck they've introduced like a whole like gameplay system based around building your deck drawing your cards placing your objectives it's, it's really cool so for um for anyone interested uh, in chapter approved 2019 there are 17 pages worth of match play content not including points so that's all your missions and bits and there are 35 pages dedicated to narrative <laughs> yeah um, Which is top notch grey day. That's what I want in a book. Yeah, and to be honest, like I say, a good a good half of that match play stuff I think is relevant to us anyway, because the Maelstrom stuff I think is uh it's a good sort of bridging point between match play and narrative play. Um and I think bringing in the new schemes of war deck building system actually adds a lot to Maelstrom. So I think that's gonna be fun to talk about. Yeah. Um and then we've got a few news and new releases from the recent open day that we'll talk about after that. Um, and then, as always, we'll go talk about some of the games we've played and check in with our Penn Station Garrison. Although it's a bit more of a, an open-ended one this time, as really it's just kind of whatever things we've managed to get up to over the holiday period. So um, I think, unless there's anything else, guys, we'll probably just jump over to our Penn Station Garrison next. Cracketh on us. Superb. Cool. We'll be back in a second, guys. And we're back, guys. So, who's been up to hobby stuff over the Christmas period? Me. Me. Go on, then. Go on, Chris. Tell I'll us. I'll let Dave go first. You sure? Yeah, go for it, Dave. Right, yeah, Dave, I, I mean, it's been a kind of quiet, uh, a mixed holiday. I, I spent some time away. Uh, I spent some time with my parents and my in-laws and spent time with the kids, but I managed to squeeze in a bit of hobby. I guess the biggest thing I did was uh, sort out a load of recycled marines that I got. <laughs> so one of the lads of the club is, is looking at moving abroad and uh, he's, um, he's uh, divesting himself of quite a lot of his uh, warmer and other miniature, miniature hobby stuff. And I picked up uh, quite a few second-hand space marines from him, many of which were partially built, missing arms, backpacks not on, things like that. So I spent quite a lot of time refurbishing about 126, I think I counted, space marines um, that will become Rainbow Warriors. A couple of squads of Chaos ones, I'm going to have some Fallen Rainbow Warriors. I got excited and did uh, a whole load of stuff. And uh, the first few characters, I think, if people have been following following the uh, Narrative Wargamer Facebook group, they'll see me post up the first couple of characters that I finished painting there. Um, yeah, so I've seen get, them. Um, They're really nice. A new captain uh, with a, an extra long sword, which I think used to belong to a uh, uh, a Grey Knight. <laughs> is, is there rules for an extra long sword? Uh, no, no. It's just uh, 
in his background stuff, he, he, he spent a short period serving with the Angry Marines, so he needs an extra long sword. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had done a, a chief librarian um, who's uh, got slightly crazy eyes and a, a willingness to uh, beat his opponents to death with their bare hands when necessary. Uh, so, and uh, a chapter master, because I played uh, a couple of episodes ago, I, I said I played a game against Tyranids, against one of the local lads at the club, Declan. And uh, in that, for the first time, I've taken the stratagem that allows you to upgrade your captain to a chapter master. Uh, and I rather like the effect of it, and I thought, I need a chapter master model. <laughs> so, uh, he's actually a fairly straightforward um, a Terminator sergeant, really. Uh, but I've painted him up so that he uh, he's the chapter master for my rainbow warriors extra rainbowy as many rainbows as possible i was talking glued with skittles to his base uh, i haven't glued skittles to his base but he's got many many tufts so i really love skittles hey the the whole thing is you know you need to taste the rainbow you know and sometimes uh, on the end of a power sword <laughs> that must be the battle cry that'd be a great battle he should be if it isn't he should be yes. but they um yeah, I'm really pleased where they come out. I've not done them like super detailed level. I've not put 12, 14, 16 hours in. I've only put a couple of hours into them, but I'm just pleased to have the model, and uh, it's really nice. And then I've been painting, just keeping up with the uh, uh, other things in there. I've started an assault squad with jetpacks. Uh, I've got a chaplain and a lieutenant on the desk that has half finished that I've not finished yet, and uh, another 100 behind uh, waiting to go. So I've got a lot of rainbows and a lot of skittles in my future. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, oh. before those, just before Christmas, I also finished uh, the uh, Black Legion Terminators that I've been uh, moaning about. They gold on for a while. Uh, six spirit hosts. Uh, one of those was an absolute pain when it fell apart. But uh, they were, they're fun uh, to build, aren't they? Oh, uh, most of them. Five of them were fine, but one of them it just wouldn't stay together, and that was that was yeah. a real pain in the bum. And uh, I finished five more space dwarves, the the grim uh, miniatures from Hasselfee. So uh, they went into a game that I'll talk about later as well. Awesome. It sounds like you kept yourself busy. Yeah, lots of rainbows. <laughs> what about you, Chris? You've been painting rainbows? Uh, not rainbows. Uh, pretty much everything but rainbows, actually. Uh, so over Christmas, commission-wise, I've been stupidly busy. Uh, so it started with 30 uh, Tempestus Scions and a Torox uh, for a chap in Southampton. I was really, really pleased with those. I think when you've got that many infantry painted on the board... It doesn't matter how good or bad they are, they look fantastic. So I was really, really pleased with those. Uh, shortly followed by some Game of Thrones models for a Sound of Ice and Fire I'm doing for a client. Uh, that's like 100-something models. So I took a break halfway through to paint 62 Urukai for a Lord of the Rings army for another client. <laughs> yeah, because that sounds like taking a break. <laughs> yes. No, to be fair, I had a couple of days off and I didn't know what to do. Um <laughs> Then I did, for me, I did my Corpse Grinder Corp for Necromunda, and I love them. I've played a lot of games with those, which I'll talk about a bit later. Uh, and then today I just finished their Party Bus, which is a converted Goliath truck for the Dune Steeler Corp. It's covered in skulls and gore and red transfers. And yeah, that's their uh, their Impala 6-4, or the Impaler 6-4, if you would. And then I also finished some Ogrins for my Solar Auxilia, and I love those models. I can see me quite happily fielding 12 of them. Uh, I think that's me. Yeah, that's me. Awesome. Well, a fairly quiet one. <laughs> a fairly quiet. It sounds incredibly busy to me, but I, I, it's a world of difference between uh, what time we have available. So, like myself, I was pleasantly surprised on Christmas Day 
with um, several boxes of Sector Imperialis terrain that my missus got me. <laughs> is she good? She is. Honestly, I was like, wow, I did not expect to get all this. Um, like, I know she's been asking me <laughs> in the past couple of months about a few preferences for like terrain and stuff and things that I'd like. Um, like, we've been down once or twice to Warble World recently and she's always been like, oh, what about, what about those? Do you like those? Do you have any? It's always phrases like, do you have any of those? Could you use some more of them? As subtle as a cinder block. Yeah. I like it. Um, but I was expecting maybe like one, maybe at most like two little boxes of stuff and instead she got me about like five mid-sized to big boxes of terrain. So basically in the past well, week or so, um, 10 days or something, any like evening I've had to sort of sit down and do some hobbying, I've been clipping buildings from sprues <laughs> and um, like cleaning them down and everything and I've I've got a desk full now of um, a complete just like toy box of parts to build because I'm not I never just build them as they get out of the box I see five kits as one pool of parts to sort yeah. of build from to sort of decide what I'm going to do with so that's going to be probably what I'm going to be diving into next week and just putting together probably two or three quite large buildings rather than like the four or five sort of standard sized ones so yeah. that's going to be fun. Um, I should really start getting me a good bit of headway towards having a proper like Cities of Death board, which will be excellent. Fantastic. Um, You'll be able to have a ruined Cities of Death on one side and uh, the remainder of your jungle on the other. Is it creeps <laughs> over it, right? <laughs> yeah, could easily do that. Just have like Death World rules on one half of the board and City Pie on the other. That'd be quite cool, actually. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, um, there was actually two markets that I got as well from friends and family and stuff. And one was um, the Eldar Webway Gate, um, which is oh, something that I've wanted for a long time to kind of be like the centerpiece terrain feature on the jungle board. Because it kind of just completes the whole Death World aesthetic with like the Eldar ruins and stuff. So um, I've got that built up and it's, it's really weird because it's the finished version is like a kit, but it's in two halves. Because it's just yeah. two single like pillars like that stand next to each other to create the archway. So it looks really yeah. cool when they're in position, but it's just weird storing them because they're just two individual pieces. Yeah, I got one of those and built it earlier this year, and I've not done anything other than build it. But it, it is slightly odd in that sense, but it does fit in so nicely with some of those uh, those other Eldar ruiny type uh, bits of scenery. It'll look great it does. On jungle tabletop. Uh, and what I'm thinking is. Because I have all my other Death World scenery on, on like custom made um, area terrain like boards for them, um, I'm thinking I'm going to build them up for the Webway Gate as well and then magnetize it to it so that I can just pop the Webway Gate off it. But I can also have it on a, a more scenic jungle base around it as well. So it won't look too out of place, just being the only freestanding piece of terrain on a board that otherwise has footprinted pieces everywhere else. Sounds funky. Um, yeah, I always like it when um, people work on terrain as opposed to armies because, as I've shown yeah. said before, it is a third army on the table. If you don't have well, decent terrain, it's almost like you're pushing plastic toy soldiers around a table, and that's not what it's all about. Yeah, and honestly, I've been putting so much more work in recently on my terrain, and I absolutely love it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having two really decent quality sort of like styles of board soon. So, And then the other thing I also got was um, a Sky Shield landing pad to add to this sort of like the city um, scape. I do like the landing pad. That's one I need for um, 
the Urban Conquest mission where you've got to defend the Scarshield landing pad from invaders. That's really, really fun. <laughs> yeah, there's also a, um, I can't remember which publication it's in as well, but there's a, uh, a narrative mission where it's, there's three Valkyries that are trying to escape um, the board, and like one of them's got the VIP and two of them have got like decoys. And the board uses three Skyshield landing pads, one for each Valkyrie. Nice. Um, so building towards that as a goal would be quite nice. And then you can have this sort of like airport set up as the centre of a city fight board. That'd be really cool. But yeah, that's been me. Like, Lucky dip Valkyrie. Yeah. Um, so I've not actually been doing a ton of painting. I've been building or you know, preparing for build more than anything. Um, but the Skyshield landing pads put together now and I was just the Webway gate and all the um, Imperialist buildings are just a very fun toy box of parts I cannot wait to start gluing together and coming up with some really interesting building layouts um, so yeah so that's that's everything I've been up to over Christmas and the New Year um, but what are we all like thinking that we're going to be doing for hobby resolutions for the next year really like what are our Go on, Dave. I won't copy you, I promise. Uh, yeah, I probably won't, unless you're planning on painting a lot more Rainbow Warriors. I want to try and get another 100 or so Rainbow Warriors added to my, my army to finish my Night Haunts and uh, also try and get on with my Blood Angels army this year. That's that's really where I'm going. Hopefully I'll do a bit more than that, but but that's the core of my commitments for this year. Wicked. What about you, Tony? Uh, I think my core is going to be getting a fully painted battlefield to play on. Because I feel like I'm getting closer and closer and I'm kind of bouncing between like the City Fight board and the Death World board. So I just want to see at least one of them like come to completion. Um, and the main reason for that being is that once I feel like I don't have to be spending my painting time at home working on terrain, I can start spending more of it working on my orcs. So Hooray. it's almost like a aim to finish one thing so I can actually really put in some good hours on another thing. But, um, so you can treat yourself to paint 100 old boys. I like it. It's good. There, there is a great sense of satisfaction of finishing a board. Um, I have probably mentioned this before, but I, me and my friends have, have run together uh, one of the larger bolt action tournaments in the country. And uh, I've done a lot of the scenery. And getting the scenery together and coming, getting a board coming together, whether it was our, our Normandy board or um, submarine pen or Starlinger board, is there's really an awful lot of satisfaction in that. And it really does feel good. I agree. I've painted displays for stores. I've got my own table at home. Uh, me and my brother painted a six by four in a day. Yeah. It's a uh, it's something I'd recommend people give a go if they've never tried it before. No, no, just like what Chris was saying earlier, it really is is the third army on the on the board and uh, a nice looking terrain with nice painted armies on it. it. You know, it's not easy to achieve all the time. It's hard getting all that painting in, but um, it really is. I, worth I, it I love green felt as much as the next man, yeah. but not all the time. Can't stand felt. Nice. Then, uh, my hobby resolutions for 2020 are going to be uh, very little painting involved, funnily enough, because I do a lot of that. Uh, <laughs> I want to attend five or more gaming events. I think I've already got three planned, so I'm nearly there. I'll enter Armies on Parade again, because I thoroughly enjoy Armies on Parade again, being back to painting scenery and the impact it has. Then I want to get my Solar Auxilia for Horus Heresy up to 2,000 points minimum. I should be able to do more, but never say never. Uh, and then I want to build a Necromunda Zone Mortalis board now that the tiles are out and I think we'll see the uh, Zone Mortalis bits available by themselves soon I was going to say I think I I would like to make that a commitment of my own as well to be honest but I I can't really commit to it until knowing that the set and the range of plastic walls are actually becoming available separately at some point in the future 
who knows it well, might I've take got two of the lots from Dark Uprising so that should see me through and then I've got loads of Sector Mechanicus I can bolt onto it as well I, I just want to sort of build one from scratch myself because unfortunately like I I don't need the enforcers or the cobs grinders or yeah. the game um, assets because I've got it all because yeah. I've got collected built almost everything else from Necromunda um, that I want and the main thing I want now is as a Mortalis board built for myself so I'm going to have to accommodate him I'm going to have to um, satisfy myself for now with some 40k cities before I can get into some underhive cities. Fair play. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that was a relatively nice, short and sweet paint station garrison. So I think we'll take another quick break there and then we will jump into our games played. Right guys, and we are back, and as we were just talking about Necrobunda, it feels only appropriate that we start with Chris, because guess what he's been playing a lot of? A heap load of Necromunda. I am Munda up to my eyeballs at the minute. Uh, so I finished my Corpse Grinders just before Christmas, and I've played probably six games with them now, in varying missions and scenarios and different boards. Uh, love it. I have think I've lost nearly all my gamers, but I have got my opponents... Uh, gangs down to a fighter before they bottled out. So, Corpse Grind is very choppy, lots of XP, uh, not many missions won, but who cares as long as people are getting caught up. Um, so, have you been playing that as part of a campaign then, or are they just sort of like skirmish games that you've been playing? Just one offs. Me and my gaming group are getting back into Necromunda in a big way. So, we've been getting a load of practice games in. Uh, I'm doing Corpse Grinders, a friend's doing Enforcers, then we've got Delac, Delac, Orlock, Cordor, Chaos Cult. My Gene Steeler Court's a backup. So a lot going on. And then I've joined a Necromunda campaign at Boards and Swords in Derby. That kicks off this week. I'm going there on Wednesday. Oh, I'm so jealous. Like there's, There is some rumblings and talk about a, uh, a local Necromunda campaign sign up close to me. I really hope it does actually take off and it doesn't just become sort of like, you know, hype. But we'll see. Yeah. Like um, Depending on how much time I have spare... I'll either be playing with my already fully painted Eshers, or I might make an effort to put together an actual Chaos Heller to gang, because um, I do really like the new edition. Yes, yeah, so I highly recommend the, they got. the the Book of Ruin is one of my favourite books that came out uh, last year. It's got that really nice kind of 40k edition rule book mixed with Horus Heresy Red Army book kind of thing. So there's loads of missions, loads of bits and barbs, loads of great artwork. Uh, it's a, a great purchase. I'm, I'm kind of holding out and hoping that they might do like an anthology or a collection book that has like. Oh yeah, they'll they'll do one in a year, perils. and I'll be like, oh great, more books, thanks. But uh, yeah, because I don't yeah, I don't currently have nice any book. of the perils books in paper, and I'd love to own all three of them. Yeah, I say perils books. Yeah, I mean fantastic. like um yeah like the book of peril, the book of judgment, the book of ruin, blah 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 blah. Yeah, and then the uh, gangs of the underhive, whatever it's called, the big one. Yeah, see, I've got that. Uh, I've got my gangs and my rules, and I've got some digital yeah. copies of the expansions. But I'd love just a collective of all the expansion books together. Yes, but we'll see. We'll see happens. what we get throughout the year. Hope, yeah. Hopefully, we continue to get support and we get some new bits sooner rather than later. Uh, then after Necromunda, I played two games of 40k in December, both in one night, both at my local Warhammer store in Derby. Great things going on there. Uh, the first game, I took my Admech with an Armager Helver in to fight some Ultramarines and got. Pretty much tabled turn two, because he had a laser indicator and a repulsor executioner, which one shot of my dune crawler and one shot of my knight. 
So that was spicy. Uh, the second game was against a World Eater Berserker heavy list, which I absolutely loved. Uh, by turn three, there were Berserkers in my deployment zone. All my guys were getting charged. Somehow, I managed to claw a victory. It ended with my uh, my Tech Priest Dominus, who had the... Um, what's it called? Uh, the Adamantine Arm, which is an artifact, which gives you one strength 12 AP 33 damage attack. And he had his... Terminator Warlord left on the table with two wounds. And uh, the Tet Priest turned to his soldiers and said, Hold my pint and watch this. Charge the World Eater Terminator Captain. Uh, managed to dish that one blow in and get him off the table. My opponent agreed it was the top narrative, banterific thing to do. <laughs> uh, both great games, uh, both different outcomes. But uh, I'd quite like to get my Admech out more. But I think I'm going to wait for those new releases before I uh, venture too far. Going to get yourself a literal whirly bird. I want a flappy thing. I love it. I think they look great. Yeah, I like those ornithopters. They remind me very much of Dune, but um, the the film. But um, uh, nevertheless, they, they look great and they fit in with the Admech stuff. I yes, can't for wait sure. to yeah, I'm going to get a couple of those, I think, in a nice cream Metallica colour. Uh, so those are my games played. Uh, who wants the next one? Tony. Tony, you've got a lot to talk about, haven't you? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I do not have any to talk about this time as I've been very busy with Christmas and all sorts of He's things. too busy fighting out from all those scrapings from his building. There's a fine powdered grey mist in his uh, man cave, which he's got to fight over. I, to, be, to be fair, I, I, I didn't mention it actually, but um, for Christmas as well, I also got a, a, a small stash of the new like hobby tools. So I got like the paint pot holder, the spray stick, and I actually got um, the mold line remover for the first time, which... I've never been able to bring myself to like drop the pennies on it because like what do I need one for? I've got a scalpel. I've done that with use a craft knife all my life. Will it really make a difference? But I've used it, it now does. and believe me, it makes a difference. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's a tiny bit of metal with a curve on the end. And I, I, I was the same as you. Why would I need that? I've got a standing knife. I'll use my clippers and I've got large cysts on my thumbs where I've cut into myself several times. Then you yeah. get one, and it's like, oh my god, it's literally changing my hobby for the better. Yeah, the, no. the only thing that's better, the only thing that's better than that is the little miniature version of it on the Mechboy Workshop uh, terrain for uh, <laughs> the Speed Freaks game. Yeah, yeah, that that's on my little workshop uh, that I need to paint up. I've got it undercoated. I need to finish getting that done. Um, but yeah, like I highly advise actually giving the moldline remover a go. It, it 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 could feel possibly like a bit of a an unnecessary expense but honestly it, it's brilliant and I can't believe how good it is um, but yeah so that, that's what I've been doing I've been laxing Wiracle by my mold library rather than playing games so uh, <laughs> Dave what have you been playing? Uh, yeah I did manage to get some games in I got three games of 40k in um, although the first two of them weren't 8th edition um, I uh, just after we uh, recorded last time uh, one of my mates at the club Steve who likes 40k he used to be a, a store manager um, but he's, he, he really doesn't like 8th edition. He won't play 8th edition because it really turns him off. And that's okay. That's that's just true for some of us. And he said, I want to pick up a game or something. I suggested 40k. And he said, I'm not playing 8th. I said, well, we'll play 1st then because I quite like 1st. And he knows the rules for 1st and 2nd fairly well. So uh, we had a pick up game of 1st. And it was the night before uh, Sisters came out. So uh, I uh, took down some old Sisters with their old rhinos and three or four squads of those and three drop pods and some Rainbow Warriors. And we played on a 4 by 4 a first edition game where uh, he had a convoy of sisters moving along and I dropped podded against them because Rainbow Warriors versus Sisters is uh, iconic, right? If you know your first edition artwork. Yep. And mm-hmm. 
we had a great time. It was it's a very different game uh, from eighth. I didn't remember how different it is, given that I've played a lot of eighth recently. You don't do rerolls. There, there aren't any, <laughs> uh, which makes for a very different style of game. Even though the rules are relatively similar, the turn sequence is slightly different, and uh, uh, but it's fairly easy to get to get going. We wrote out uh, the the stats for the figures and uh, just reference the rules as and when we needed. Got in some uh, shooting, which can be quite brutal and at other times quite frustrating. Uh, close combat's uh, very similar to to what it is now, although it can go on a little bit longer when when participants are evenly matched. Uh, and vehicle turn radius ratios are a nightmare. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> uh, which is a particular uh, rules mechanic for turning vehicles, which is very uh, vector and physics based. Um, it's uh, it was interesting to remember that. But nevertheless, we had a great time and that, that was fun. Uh, and then having seen us play that the following week, uh, I got in another first edition game against two lads, uh, Dan and Mike. Uh, Mike's a lot younger. Uh, Dan's a, a bit more of a veteran. And uh, we played a three-way battle. So uh, I pulled out all my uh, my new squats, my hassle-free grim miniatures, the, the space dwarves I painted in red and posted on the narrative wargamer Facebook group. I took my Rainbow Warriors again, and we played uh, a pincer movement sort of game against um, some aquatic aliens... Um, Sorry, Mike had Sisters of Battle, I had Rainbow Warriors, and the, the aquatic aliens and squats were uh, trying to form an alliance whilst the Imperium came and battled them. But of course, uh, Rainbow Warriors and Sisters don't like each other either, so they're shooting against each other. So we had quite a fun narrative game there as well, uh, in which eventually the uh, the Sisters won. So that was quite a, quite an interesting game too. Uh, just bringing out those old rules and digging it out and uh, a lot of nostalgia. Uh, but uh, yeah, a lot of busy purging well. the alliance of aliens fighting together for the purposes of their greater good. And, and what was really gay, actually more than anything else, was all those weird miniatures that I pulled out uh, pictures of in the past and posted on the group. And you think, when are you ever going to use that? Actually, I found a narrative way to use those miniatures. So that was that was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Uh, and then the last one was our big Christmas game. So it was 8th edition, but it wasn't a normal game. We played on four tables, so it was a 12 by 8 board with seven players. Um, so uh, me, Mike again from the previous game with his uh, custodies, uh, some Imperial Guard, two lots of chaos, and uh, was the other one? Uh, no, three lots of chaos. <laughs> Against uh, Dan, uh, one of the other admins of the club, who brought down uh, six knights, an arminger, and a warhound titan. <laughs> and it was like everybody against the, the titans. And uh, we only got three turns in, but it was uh, it was good. We managed to take down the titan at the end of turn three, so it all felt like we'd come to a conclusion. Uh, but it was just a big, silly uh, game. Now, with eight players, we, we basically divided into three teams. Uh, A's and B's going around the table, uh, all taking their turns at the same time. And then B's, you know, A's take their turn, do everything. B's take their turn, do everything simultaneously. And then the knights had their turn. Um, so a little bit mad, a little bit hectic, but a lot of fun for the last club night before Christmas. Good. Especially Warhound Time on the table, and it's, it's such a nice model uh, that Dan's painted. Uh, beautiful marbling that you've got, got on the, uh, the the miniature. A miniature, it's a Warhound Titan at 28mm scale. <laughs> uh, but it's great to get it out and play with it every now and again. Excellent. Well, it sounds like you've both been very busy getting in lots and lots of games over the holiday period. I've just remembered one of the most important factors in my next Monday game, if I can maybe backtrack ever so slightly. Um, I played against my mate Matt's Delat Gang. He was taken for a spin for the first time, and we rolled the Meat Harvest mission, where there are 12 Hive Dwellers on the board, 
he had to capture them to defend them, and I wanted to go and eat them and chop them into bits and devour them with some nan bread and a nice Chianti. Uh, <laughs> now, twelve. we needed 12 markers, which we didn't have anything definitive of, so we used the inventive uh, penny pasta. So <laughs> there's a great picture I'll upload to the, uh, the Facebook group of just my guys running at pasta and hacking into it and him trying to defend the pasta. It was a carb-heavy game, but it was good fun. Is this the forty, the, the twenty-eight mil equivalent of using rice for six millimeter armies? Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. But now I'm desperately trying to look for uh, models that I can use as hive dwellers because they're supposed to be these, obviously these unarmed, dweeby, terrified civilians. Um, you don't see many of those in a model range. <laughs> well, uh, with that, I think it will be about time for us to move on to our spotlight topic. So we'll be back in a minute, guys. Yay! Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. Right guys, we are back and it is time for our pretty much jam-packed main spotlight topic tonight, which is Chapter Approved 2019. And boy oh boy is there a lot of awesome new stuff in here. So we're going to break it down pretty much like section by section as we go through the book um just dice for the the main focuses on narrative play and um there's a few sections which i think are almost going to warrant their own episode in the future so things like the um the spearhead um gameplay stuff we're going to talk about in a future episode because again there's like enough there to talk about his own show and it kind of falls in line with these like secondary formats to 40k games like Seas of Death, um, Planet Strike, uh, Stronghold Assault, stuff like that. Spearhead is an, another version of that. So we'll talk about that one another day. But that does not mean that there is not enough to talk about today because there is tons in here. Um, and the first thing we're going to talk about is, honestly, I think this was the biggest surprise in the book for me, was the open war cards. So the new drafting system for it. And the reason why I say this is the biggest surprise to me was because this is actively, like two years later, continued support for a single release deck of cards product that exists in the Games Workshop product line and yet creates an entire own version of the game. Like, open war games using these cards are brilliant and I'm a big fan of them. Um, and I'm honestly surprised and amazed to see that they're continuing to reference their existence. They've not just gone, oh, this was a thing we made two years ago, kind of forgotten about it. It's like R&D time has gone into these things. So I, think I, I adore them. It's still one of my favourite ways to play 40k. And they are still available. Yeah, yeah I know they're they still available on the website, so uh, <laughs> I'll, start, I'll definitely check this out and get this played. Uh, I've got a load of 40k games planned for next week, so I'll take my cards with me and take this for a spin. Yeah, so it's... It's quite a simple thing. 
Sorry, I wasn't saying I remember that. I think on the first episode that I was on, uh, this was the, the topic and you talked through how to use these. Um, so they're definitely something that we've uh, found to be a useful part of the game. Um, yeah. The, I'm the, the, equally pleased as you that they're in there and, and um, they're getting some love. Yeah, honestly, it's, it's it's a lovely surprise because they're one of my favourite ways to play the game and I think it's brilliant that they, they've not been forgotten about. You know, they're not just something that was made and then never mentioned again. Um, so... Yeah, like when you buy the deck, it comes with its own little insert that explains how to generate a mission using the cards. And it, it effectively, you randomly draw cards from a selection of like mini card decks within it. So things like the deployment map, the objective you're going to be playing, and then things like twists and ruses that are sort of like unique um, events or special rules that all apply to that game. But in, I always refer to it as a random mission generator, and instantly that yeah, it's basically what it is. Um, but what they've introduced in chapter approved um, last year <laughs> um, is a, a, like three new methods of drafting these missions, and they're really cool. So the first, and I guess what you'd call like the primary method, is the new standard drafting system, which basically creates a bit more sort of like player determined control over the randomly drawn cards but done in a yep. I pick you pick sort of like therefore tactical playing off each other's decisions method yep. um, so when you generate a mission using this method um, you basically assign a player A and player B um, and you start by uh, player A takes the deck of deployment cards selects three of them lays them out in front of player B and player B selects one of them to be used for the mission. So you're presenting that choice, but you're not getting the final say on what it's going to be. Your opponent does. Then conversely, player B does the same with the deck of objective cards. So selects three of them from the deck and offers those as the choice of objectives that they're going to play over to player A, who then picks which one will be the objective for that mission. Um, and then finally, uh, using this particular method, each player then selects one of their twist cards. Um, well, selects a twist card from. Oh no, sorry. I guess let me just read this correctly so that it's clear. Player A then takes the deck of twist cards and shuffles um, the cards and deals them into two piles. Each player then takes one of those piles, selects one twist card, and places it in front of them. Both players have once both players have selected a twist card, both players reveal their choice, and both twists apply for the duration of the mission. Yeah, the more twists, the better. Yeah, I think. Yeah, playing with multiple twists is hilarious. I mean, some of them can be really cool. Like I've got my deck of open more cards here now in front of me, and um, I think two of my favourite twists are um, uh, Acid Rain, where it limits your range to twelve inches, because instantly that makes a lot of armies go, "Oh no, oh god." Uh, shortly followed by Falling Debris, where uh, meteorites strike the battlefield and do D3 or D6 mortal wounds to units on a certain roll. So I can imagine those two in the same game would be absolute carnage. <laughs> Acid wreckage. <laughs> Acid, Acid wreckage. <laughs> it burns and it hurts us! So some Death Guard um, void ship has just exploded above. Yeah, just <laughs> dropping dysentery on everyone. So, so this is just that small little sort of I pick, you pick methodology. Um, it just makes it a little bit tactical. Like I say, y- you might know what sort of armies you're both bringing, um, and player A then gets to try and pick deployment types that might be advantageous. But 
then player B gets to play off what the objective for that mission is going to be, knowing what those deployment maps are and so on. So I think it's really cool. And it's, um, to be honest, I think, I think this is probably more of a sensible approach to drafting these missions than just drawing them what randomly every component for each game because sometimes you get a bit wonky scenarios or something that might be advantageous to one particular army. Like um, yeah. I once played a game with my orcs versus dark angels where we drew the deployment map that has no no man's land. It's just a just straight line down the middle and each side of that line is each player's deployment zone. So yeah. my entire orc army can start at the halfway point on the board. And then the twist we got was all models um, on both sides get plus two to advance and charge rolls. Spicy. I'm like, right, I'm playing orcs. I can advance and charge in a turn with my war boss. Um, so suddenly I'm getting like plus four on top of my movement at slash charging and I can re-roll all of this and I start in the middle of the table. It's like, this is going to be a little one-sided for the orcs. Let's uh, <laughs> let's redraft that mission. Whereas this would allow you to avoid that because, well, it would allow you to control it more because of the fact that you're going to pick three advantageous things for the orc on deployment, maybe, but then the Dark Angels are going to get to pick three advantageous objectives for them to try and achieve. Exactly. Yeah, so it kind of balances the field a little bit. But it's not about balance, it's about the scenario you come up with and rolling dice, having fun, do a story. Yeah. But it's nice when it doesn't feel like you're playing a foregone conclusion. Yeah, there's nothing worse than drawing a bad hand of like, yeah. like if you if I was the Dark Angel player, you'd be like, yeah, we'll play this. Oh, can we? No. Oh, okay. Um, but then there is the second method, which is secret agenda, which basically is a a way of more or less keeping all the extra cards involved in the scenario kind of hidden. <laughs> so this is. Um, uh, player A shuffles the deck of deployment cards, draws the top card as normal to determine their map. Cool, so just randomly drawn deployment. Player B does the same with the objective cards, so just a randomly drawn objective. Cool. Player A then takes the deck of twist cards, um, and then shuffles the remaining cards and deals with its two piles. Each player then takes one of these piles, selects one twist, and places it face down in front of them, so you don't know what your opponent's twist card is. And at the start of the battle round, each player rolls 1d6, so on a 4+, plus, that player reveals their twist card, and that twist now applies from that point for the rest of the battle. And awesome. um, So that's something new with these, because there hasn't been anything where the twist isn't immediately active the entire game, so that could be really interesting if, say, you were playing with that card where everything gets plus 2 inches to advance and charge. Well, you've got that hidden, and it might start from turn 2, you know, and suddenly your opponent could be completely caught off guard by the sudden, like, burst of speed that you now have. Um, and then player B shuffles the ruse cards and deals one to each player face down. These are kept secret until played. And then player A shuffles the sudden death cards and deals one to each player face down. And these are kept secret. Now, this is one of the big sort of changes to how the open war cards have worked in the past. So... Um, ruse cards have been kept secret before. They're things like, um, uh, like revenge. Play this card if your lord is slain. For the rest of the battle, you can add one to the wound rolls made for models in your army. Yeah. Um, 
uh, inspiring speech, play this card after deployment is complete, but before the first bar round, as long as your warlord is on the battlefield, your units automatically pass morales. Stuff like that, like, cool. Um, the ruses are sort of like interesting tactical gambits or tactical plays that you can do uh, either at the start of the game or mid-game, depending. Um, but they're, they've typically been hidden anyway. The thing that's interesting and particularly different is the inclusion of the sudden death cards in this scenario, because they are like hugely game-changing. And yes. um, there's only, what, six or so of them? But basically... In the original versions of the missions, you only use the sudden death cards if you're playing an unbalanced game. So if you were playing yes, like because it's if you're drastically undercosted against your opponent or something. Yeah, like doubly so. It's like so if you were playing a thousand point army versus a two thousand point army, and the the point of the sudden death card is it gives you a way of just winning the scenario on the spot, um, despite the fact that you're disadvantaged because you've got a smaller army. So for example. Yeah. Um, kill order. Play this card if you destroy the enemy character, vehicle, or monster that has the highest wounds characteristic of any enemy model that is currently on the battlefield. Um, nice. You immediately win the battle. Kill the biggest thing, you win. And your opponent might not know that you've got that. Um, vital of ground. Starting from the third battle round, Play this card at the end of your turn if there are no enemy units within nine inches of the center of the battlefield. You immediately win the battle. So having cards like that that are hidden and you know your opponent's got one but you have no idea what that condition is it could be tactically interesting, if, especially if it's something that you're sort of struggling to achieve easily and therefore you're having to commit resources and effort to it, but if it's just a matter of like, oh, I'm playing your Necrons, I destroyed your Monolith turn one, I win. I think having just one hidden sudden death card, in addition to the fact that this mission is using an actual objectives mission as well, so there is the standard objective that's been played, whatever that is for this mission, having a sudden death card for each player, and I'm uncertain on whether or not it might create some feel bad moments where all of a sudden you're playing a game and then your opponent just declares that they win and you kind of didn't know what they were even doing to try and achieve that victory you know what I mean like as if you can't counterplay yeah. it yeah, I've had trouble actually getting anybody to ever want to play with the, the sudden death cards for, for exactly that reason the perception that it'll go funny have you had those kind of funny end uh, game uh, results because of because of sudden death Tony. I haven't. I've played a couple of Sun Deaths myself, and they've normally come up quite. Oh, okay, cool, wicked. Do you want to get another game in and just spin it straight around to? Yep, yeah, that was cool. That's fun. Let's play another game. Yeah, like I've I've never played with them myself for more or less the same reasons. Like I've never played yet with such an imbalanced um, army choices. Like I haven't played a game with like two thousand points versus a thousand or whatever. I think in that scenario. The whole point is that you're trying to achieve that sudden death victory almost as a, this is the only way I can possibly win because I'm not going to win in a straight game. Um, and funnily enough, there's a whole new section of challenge missions in this book that almost scratch that itch now instead. So I don't think it's kind of that necessary for the open war cards. However, 
they redeem themselves very much so with method free covert operations because I think this is a very clever way of using the sudden death cards and where I don't feel it would result in feel bad moments. So this one, player A shuffles the deck of deployment cards, draws the top card as normal to determine the deployment map for this mission. Player B then shuffles the sudden death cards and deals two to each player face down. These are kept secret until they are played. Sudden death cards must be played as soon as their conditions are met. However, a player does not immediately win the battle when they play one of their sudden death cards. Instead, a player must play both of their sudden death cards to immediately win the battle. And then yeah, player that's takes a deck of cards. makes it a lot more kind of not balanced, but a lot more circumstantial. Yeah. So then you also play with this with um, one face-up bruise card and... No, sorry, one face-up twist card and and bruises as normal. So if there's an imbalance, the person with the smaller army gets a bruise. So the key thing about this is the fact that there is no other objective in the game. So both players know that what they're attempting to achieve is to complete two of the sudden death conditions. Now, when that suddenly becomes... I have to um, destroy the biggest thing with the most wounds in your army and make sure there are no enemy units within nine inches of the centre of the battlefield from the third battle round. That becomes more tactically taxing and isn't just so much of an instantaneous, oh, I destroyed your monolith, I win. Instead, I have to destroy that monolith, otherwise I can't win the game. But in addition to that, I also have to hold the centre of the board. Yeah, of these three different uh, options of ways of playing with them, certainly the covert uh, operations does seem the, the the most radical of the three, certainly the most interesting to me. Uh, that, that combination of having to get two sudden death cards uh, really does make a difference compared to what we talked about in the last one, mm. which is just, just one. And the key thing as well is that as soon as you achieve one of your sudden death cards, you do have to reveal that fact. So your opponent knows that you achieved one of two, so they know the pressure's on at that point. So it kind of has that natural leading conclusion that like a, a traditional victory point game would have. Yeah, sure, you know your opponent has got some victory points early turns, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to win the game just because they're in the lead right now. Same sort of principle. If they've not got any of their sudden death cards achieved yet, then fine, you almost feel like, oh, not a problem, I can kind of take my time. But <laughs> all of a sudden, one's flipped and then... That once they've completed one, there's the looming spectre of who they could just win at any moment, and you don't quite know what that moment's going to be. But I think that is um, probably the best use of the Sudden Death cards so far to date, and I would be interested in playing a mission like that, because yes. I think that would be very cool to see the two armies deployed and set up, but neither, neither player knows what it is their opponent is trying to achieve. So it might almost feel a little bit like a, a standard kill-each-other mission to begin with, but when there isn't even objective markers on the table, you're both trying to do different things. And it, it actually, I think, getting to the end of a game like that would have a, like, a hidden story that only becomes revealed by the end. Yeah. Suddenly certain player choices will make sense when you know what it was they were trying to do. No, it really does sound quite interesting to me. Uh, certainly, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Seeing both come come up and knowing that one of them is, uh, is come up because they're uh, 
I can't find my open wall. I've been looking around my room for my open wall deck while we've been talking, and I can't find it anywhere. I can't remember how many uh, sudden death cards there are in the deck. Uh, well, I've got mine here. I can tell you there are six. So six. So that if you've got two that... each, it's not like you, you definitely know what your opponent's got even after they've revealed one, does it? Yeah, exactly. Like, there's that... Even if you've played a few times and you know what the six objectives are, you still can't, you only know what two of them are that you've currently got. So you've still got four things that you might be trying to juggle to try and avoid your opponent achieving any of them. But that's going to be difficult and that's kind of a more advanced level of play for now if it's just concentrating on achieving your two objectives and generally not getting cleared off the table too badly, then I think it'll make for a fun game. But yeah, that basically that's the, the new drafting methods for the open war cards. I certainly advise anyone to go out and pick up a deck of open war cards if they get a chance. It's... Agreed. I'm gonna try I might try one of those formats in one of my games next week. I will message one of my opponents after I've finished here. <laughs> Excellent. Alright, so we will take a very quick break there and then we'll be back with the new army generator system, which is very cool. Right, so we're now back with the Open War Army Generator, which if you enjoyed your randomly generated missions, then why not try some randomly generated army lists? Um, I think this is a this is a very unique idea, and I don't think I've ever seen any sort of previous publication have anything similar to this, and I think it's very, very exciting. Yeah, I'm certainly, I'm struggling to get my head around it, so I'm looking forward to hearing you explain it to us, Tony. <laughs> yeah, so it. I'll admit it took, I had to read through it once or twice to properly get my head around how it was working in its details, but it makes sense once you understand it. I think one thing that's worth mentioning before you get into the rules is, uh, I don't think we've mentioned it so far, but there's a lot of fantastic artwork in Chapter Approved. <laughs> and there's an absolutely wonderful looking Necron Warrior on page 14 in this start of this Open War Army Generator section that's just... Uh, just a brilliant little piece of art there. It's funny, it is a brilliant piece of art, but when I always look at a Necron like in that much detail, they always look like they have really weak ankles to me. Because <laughs> it's basically Armored got... It's and got, wrists. Yeah, because it's got like no ankle, really. But One really good kick and he'd be down. <laughs> but then he'd reanimate and then he'd be in trouble because he'd just be annoyed. Yeah. But they do so, re- rebuild themselves like the T2000, right? Uh, so, yeah, the... Uh, the army list generator. So I think this is a really cool idea and it's brilliant for anyone that's got a large collection or if you just really want to bust out some units that you don't use very often because they might not necessarily be the most optimised option for like, you know, match play. But then again, who cares? They're cool and you want to use them. And this gives you a way of bringing them to the table and not feeling bad about it <laughs> because that's what the generator has given you and that's what you have to work with. So... Um, it is very cool, and it runs off the sort of narrative idea that obviously not every general always gets the tools that he wants to work with. And to be honest, it wasn't until I was reading this that I was like, yeah, that's not actually really a very well-represented aspect of warfare in 40k. That, you know, quite often you don't have that exact build of a space marine battle group that you want. You might actually just have part of a company. And that means that you don't have access to any Devastators because the 10th Company are currently deployed elsewhere. That's right, the 9th Company. Even. Um, so I think that's a it's a very cool sort of little take on 
how some armies might actually be comprised in the 40, uh, 41st millennium. So, um, rules-wise, basically, it's a way of using a D66 table to determine what units are available for you to take in your army list for any given game. And the way you go about it is, obviously you and your opponent both agree that you're going to use this method of army generation. And it starts with determining um, a points value for your game. So you can still use, I mean, in here you use as power level, but as always, I think you can quite interchangeably use power level and points. So say that you both agreed that you wanted to play a 2000 point game. Cool. That means you've got like 2000 points to spend on this army list as you generate it. And you keep adding units at it, um, keep adding units to your army in a semi-randomized fashion until you reach that 2000 point value or limit. Okay, so you've got a little less control over what you're actually selecting. You can't use your army list to build to effect. I mean, you can know which sort of units you could bring in there, but what you can actually select is randomized based on these roles. Yes. It'll be interesting as well to see how, um, how because obviously it's designed for power levels as opposed to points, mm. but how that would translate over to points. I actually think points would probably work better these days. Yeah, something I've started using is power levels uh, in games in, in, in place of points, and I found very little difference in, in the way you select and, and the way the armies play out. And there's a, a reticence to use power levels, but um, I've, I've found they work pretty well, actually. Uh, I think they're great They're great for those pickup games and for those... Uh, I've got a friend who played 40k 10 years ago. Oh, I'd like to give it a go. Cool, we'll play a 15 power level game. This is what you've got available. Get 15 power out of this book. And go from there, as opposed to how many points does the plasma gun cost? Here's hmm. a calculator. Not that that's what they all sound like, but um, that's what most most of us sound like when we're making army lists. I agree. That's what <laughs> I sound like, definitely. That's what I sound like. Um, yeah, I think it's a nice way to get a game going quickly, fluidly. Um, and again, it's great for open play now to play where you're not worrying too much about the finite costs of your army. Absolutely, because we. I certainly don't think I don't see some people have a major issue with it compared to points, but uh. I have no issue with power level. I'd quite happily play a power level game if my opponent preferred to. Yeah, worrying about whether you can take that extra chainsword or storm bolter is, uh, you know, overall in the number of things you're taking in a normal size game, it really doesn't make that much difference and easily outmatched by how you actually use your army and the way the terrain is laid out and, and what the missions are, especially if you're using something like open war cards. It's just a game, isn't it? It's just toy soldiers. Absolutely. But there's lots of valid ways to play, so that's how I... Of course there is. It's whatever works for you. Yeah, I think either is valid. The main, the main difference is, honestly, the fact that over the past two years, power level values haven't changed or been FAQ'd or rated or anything like that, unlike points. So it, certain units out there could feel very imbalanced compared to what they might cost in points versus power level, but... It's a minor thing, and to be honest, like I say, I almost think that's not even the focus of this, you know, random army generator. So <laughs> I don't think Max Million yeah. on points and values is the main priority here. No, sorry, slight tangent. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Um, so basically, how the system is intended to work is that you actually randomize a unit every time you deploy one. So you would use what would be considered the more 2017 method of deployment in 4k where you would alternate um units and drops rather than 
an entire army and then determining who goes for a second sort of thing. So, as written in here, um, the intention would be that you and your opponent would roll for a unit, deploy it, then your opponent would roll for a unit, deploy it, and then back to you and so on. So you're actually building up your army as you deploy it, so you don't even know everything you're going to have as some units hitting the table. But you, when you say roll for unit and deploy it, some of these, these entries on the table are like multiple units. So if you rolled two troops units, you deploy those two troops units and then your opponent will get another roll. Is that right? Yes. So the D66 table offers basically a certain category or choice on each result. So for example, if you rolled an 11, if you rolled <laughs> your, your double one on your 66, um, you would get to deploy one unit of troops. So you can take any unit from your troop choice in your codex or collection or whatever it is you're pulling from, deploy that unit on the table, and you tot up then either its power level or points, whatever, and that's then added to your running total. And you would keep generating units and deploying units until you hit that cutoff point, so you hit 2,000 points on the table. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep, cool. So, like you say, if, say, you rolled... uh, There's not a very clean example. Oh, yeah. If you rolled 21 on the D66 table, that simply states two troop units. So you would pick, I believe it's up to the two troops, or I think it has to be. I'm not sure it's fine now. I think it has to be, I think. Yeah, so... During deployment, each player must keep track of that its power level once a generated unit entry results in a player's power level equaling or exceeding the power level of the battle they can deploy. Yeah, so you can exceed the power level uh, that you've agreed to with your last roll. And if yeah, exceed- which is one of the key things, because if you're wanting to then play it um, relevant to the open war cards and such, that would give you a determination of who is the army, the higher rated army, to then allow the lower rated yeah, army to get a ruse card. So you could... Something like- Depending on what your role choice could be, you'll, uh, you could be on 1,900 points in your 2,000 point army, and then your last drop might be a Bane Blade. <laughs> Hooray! You know, and then suddenly you're going to be, you know, at like 2.3k almost, whereas your opponent's last unit might be, here's some Space Marines, takes me to 2,001 points. But then they would get a Ruse card, because then they're playing this slightly understrength army. Um... Yeah, so, so when you roll on the D66 table, when a player generates a unit entry, they must select one of the unit options listed and deploy the appropriate unit or units from their collection wholly within their own deployment zone. Players must deploy as many units as they are able to based on the units available in their collection. Any units the player is not able to deploy are ignored. So yes, so for example, if you rolled 21 and um, that result is two troop units. You have to deploy two troop units. It's not up to two troops. Yeah. So well, you don't know how many tactical squads of different chapters I've painted. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a lot to go through. Um, so it's kind of all broken down. So the results can include a troop unit, an elite unit, a fast attack unit, a heavy support unit, and then sort of like HQ characters are kind of broken down to two categories which is a champion unit, which is a character unit that is not a vehicle or monster. So 
your sort of basic infantry characters, possibly like bike mounted characters, basically. And then the other option is a conqueror unit, and that is any unit with the HQ battlefield role. So that's your Lehman Rust tank commanders, your hive tyrants, anything that is a monster or vehicle and also character. But um, what you could do with uh, like um, a champion unit, that could be a captain in Grievous Armour, or it could be a um, apothecary or a tech marine, who is actually an elite choice, but it is a character that is not a vehicle or monster, so it is a valid choice. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And the reason that there's, there's nothing around dedicated transports, but that's because any unit that can take a dedicated transport can take it if they are selected. So if you get troops and you've got um, drop assault marines, you can take a drop pod with them, for example. Yes, that is the case. So anything that can take a transport is allowed to take a transport. I, th- I think technically, as it's written in 8th edition, it's a, in this case, it's for every unit in your army, regardless of its type, you can include up to one dedicated transport when that unit is deployed. Something along those lines. Um, but then where it gets interesting is that as you roll higher up on this table, it gives you a range of choices. So say you rolled a 45. That means you can deploy either one champion unit or two troops or one heavy support unit. So that gives so that you... then gives you the ability to look at what's down and think, cool, I'll take this. Yes. This is making a lot more sense now we're talking it through. I, I really struggled to get it just reading it, but um, this looks kind of fun to me. I think I'm going to have to give this a go. Take several large boxes of miniatures down to the club and uh, see if I can persuade somebody to give this a go. One thing that question that occurs to me here is, is to do with detachments, because I don't think it mentions detachments at all anymore. The first of all, we just did was two troops. They're pretty much a match play philosophy there, the detachments are. Mm, yeah, so I had two simple solutions to this. One is either you just agree on a pre-assigned amount of command points you each have. You could say something as simple as eight, because that would be like your standard battalion plus battleforged. Or alternatively, depending on what you roll up, you could just look to actually configure those options into detachments after the fact, and then work out how many command points that gives you, which could add another layer of decision-making, because you're like, ooh, if I can fill out two elite slots, I can fill out a brigade. Mm. Yeah, yeah, or if I get troop choices five and six, that could give me double battalions. So I think there is room to just interpret detachments as you want into this. I might do a. I'll do a roll for that later for my gene court and see what I come up with. Then I'll do it. Be fun. I mean, it has to be said that I think it's something that definitely promotes having a collection of models to work with. Um, for sure. Because if you've only got models that make up a two thousand point list, then. Your 2,000 point list is going to be very similar regardless of randomly generating. But I think it's a very cool and interesting way of building some armies on the fly. Um, and you don't even have to do it drop by drop, as the book suggests. You could predetermine your army list in advance. So like, you could sit down with um, someone at your gaming club and say, oh, next week should we play a game? Should we generate our army lists now? Yeah. And then we're like, right, well... Oh, we'll I've got a week to paint another another Devastator squad. Yeah. <laughs> It even says in the book you can pre prearrange what uh, like power level limit it says in there you do, and then there's nothing stopping you skyping or like you say doing it in a medium format to do your rolls in between, and then you don't have to faff on the day, and you can prepare your armies as you take them down. 
Yeah, I think it'd be really cool. And I also think there's kind of potential to use this for like reinforcements in some scenarios. Like you could play a game where um, you you start with just like 50% of your army on the board. Cool, pick whatever you want that 50% of your army to be. But then if the mission has the other half of your army showing up as, like, as an outflanking force, maybe use this yeah. to randomly generate what the reinforcements are. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think there are lots of potential ways of using this table. I think it's brilliant. I think it's a really clever and innovative approach to 40k that I've just not seen Games Workshop do before. So I think it's a really clever and fresh idea for the game. Wonderful. Yeah, I'll do a list. Uh, I'll do a list tonight, and I'll upload it to the Facebook page. Awesome. Have to let us know how that goes. Um, and then I think we'll have another quick break, and then we'll be on to linked games and parallel battles. And guys, we're back and almost on point. We are linking from our previous segment into our next. Ho ho! I see what you did there. So that is uh, our linked games and parallel games, which are two, to be honest, sort of like concepts that I imagine a lot of people are familiar with, but I have not probably had a great chance to experiment with and see having a system that just kind of written down some guidelines to sort of help you with trying to put these sort of things together. I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. So the first of that is linked games, which... It's as simple as it sounds, right? It's just little ways of offering up um, narrative links <laughs> between um, a little series of games. And one of the big themes that they really go into in this book is linking across systems. So a lot of this is all in the context of linking the three ways to play 40k, as it were, <laughs> which is Kill Team, 40k, and Apocalypse. Um, but I also think that these can be applied to just any general purpose use. So you could just link a series of Kill Team games. You could link a series of regular 40k games. Um, I agree entirely. Um, yeah, things like Aeronautica games, um, Urban Conquest games, anything and everything, really. Uh, the guidelines are nice and they'll hopefully inspire a lot of people to do just that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite a short and simple section, really, because it more or less just provides examples of how you might have a little linked story um, and how they might be escalating between games. Um, and then there's a small selection of um, suggested battle outcomes, essentially like the winner's reward in order to get a little edge in the next game. So just things as simple as it could be things like the winner gets to choose the mission of the next game or choose or automatically gets the choice of deployment zone. Um, you could start with extra command points, um, additional warlord traits or specialist relics. Like, there's a good little list of things in here. I think they're all really cool. Um, I know I was looking at planning a small series of linked games with um, uh, a local friend who plays with Death Guard. And for me, I was thinking one of the penultimate games should be his Chaos Lord attempting to uh, send a demonhood. And depending on whether or not he succeeds in that game will be whether or not his character is a Chaos Lord or a Demon Prince in the next game. Or a spawn. He should become a spawn because that'd be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. First is, game in, turns into a spawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like that that's a very sort of 
unique story arc version. But then again, there's no reason why you couldn't do that with Eldar, where, say, your Autark gets killed in a game, and then in the next game he comes back as a Wraith Construct. Yeah. They just plucked his spirit stone out and uh, give him a new body. But um, but there's loads of um, cool little things in here, and they say they suggest different things for Keltium and Apocalypse, and uh, yeah, I think it's cool. Um, they have some examples of like mini-narratives that might link a couple of games, and I have to say the standout one for me was um, Titan Down, because I think it's a yep. really, really yeah. cool idea. And it's, it's basically... I mean, it, they themselves explain in the book that it's, it's ideal for someone who owns a 40k scale Titan in their collection, but, you know, there's a good chance that they might not necessarily know anyone else in their playgroup that has one. I did mention that I know somebody like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it gives them an opportunity to play with their Titan, even though they won't have an opponent who has an opposing Titan to use against it. So, like, suggestion in the book is um, a round one kill team game, a round two 40k game, and a round three apocalypse game. And it's all about um, crippling or disrupting or transporting this titan to its critical battlefield, where obviously it's going to be key to victory on the planet or in the war effort or whatever. So the kill team game is like a guerrilla warfare. Um, by disrupting the supply and reinforcement lines of the stronger army, their titans uh, will go unsupported. Uh, the outgunned force can then close in on their terms. So it suggests playing the um, kill team disrupt supply line mission with the titanic player as the defender. And the outcome of the battle is if the attacker wins in the next round, so the standard 40k game, the defender must subtract one from their titanic unit's hit rolls and two inches from their titan's movement characteristic. Because it's been sabotaged, or it's been undersupplied, or you know, it's there's been a enemy covert ops to try and cripple it, so it is not mm-hmm. performing as well. Whereas if the defender wins in the next round, their units are always treated as being in or on terrain feature during the first battle round. So basically, you get prepared positions on your Titan because it's yeah. fully armed and supplied, and uh, it's got its force fields all supercharged. Um. Then in round two, the 40k game, uh, with the supply lines under attack, forces have been diverted to deal a critical blow to the gorillas. Uh, the ground trembles under the advance of a mighty war machine. Is it a formidable application of power, or has the titan been purposefully drawn out? So you would play the ambush mission, which I think is a really cool mission to use for um, a one-sided titan game, because yeah. that's the one where basically... The defender starts on like a strip in the middle of the board and they have to try and escape off the far side of the board. So obviously the aim here is to get the Titan off the board because it's been ambushed en route to the, the main warfront. So the Titanic player is a defender and should use one and only one Titanic unit in this mission. So that Warhound Titan trying to make its way across the board. Um, if the defender wins in the next round, they generate the dug-in ruse from the Apocalypse mission generator and generate one additional command asset each turn. If the attacker wins in the next round, they generate the ambush ruse from the Apocalypse Mission Generator and can use this ruse on D3 detachments instead of one and generate one additional command asset each turn. So, yeah. Basically, and then you would play a big Apocalypse game with that in effect, depending on 
who was achieved what. So it might even be that round one, the kill team fails to disrupt this Titan. So it's going to do a lot better in its 40k game. But actually, in the 40k game, the Titan player might lose anyway. And at which point the Titan has then suffered under the ambush um, by the time he gets to the Apocalypse Battlefield. Yeah, I'm already incredibly inspired listening to all of that. I'm going to think about... So again, it's these are great guidelines and great guides for missions you can uh, link together over separate game systems. Uh, but I'm tempted to do one with Kill Team Sabotage the Titan, then a Warhammer 40,000 game, then maybe a Aeronautica Imperialis game to try and damage the Titan more so, uh, or the Kill Team has to destroy the anti-aircraft weapons on the Titan. Uh, and then I've got friends who play Adeptus Titanicus, and the final mission could be a Titan fight where the enemy Titan's severely wounded and crippled because of the sabotage. Yeah, that's I'm already warming my hobby giblets up with that. Yeah, and the examples in the book are only three linked missions, but there's no reason you need to limit yourself to sleep. You can go anything from two to as high as you want and make linked exactly. missions. Dems be guidelines. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't have branching um, linked games as well, because say you were going to play a large apocalypse game to finish this like campaign where you've got six players like free aside, you could have it that leading up to that apocalypse game each of those six players has been paired off with one opponent and they've played two previously chained or linked games prior to the Apocalypse. And then you've actually got three variable circumstances that could affect the conditions of that Apocalypse game. But you've not had to get six players all linking through a continuous tree of games. It's just three instances of trees not all link into one final Apocalypse game. And there's no reason why you even have to do it cross-system. Like, it's worth saying that they even mentioned the designer notes in here. You could just do this with three games of 40k. You know, yeah. maybe you do a thousand point game and a 1500 or 2000. And some of them, it doesn't always have to be an escalation. This is a good example of it escalating from smaller conflicts to larges. But they have, um, they have an example in here, I think, that was the one that starts with Apocalypse. I can't remember. Um, Maybe not. I think there's they all start at least with forty k, uh, but there's one that goes um like kill team apocalypse forty k because I think the forty k game is meant to represent the um like withdrawal after the apocalyptic battle. So like it might be um. The Assassin's Strike sounds quite good because it starts with the forty k middle of the game's apocalypse and then the last is the uh, kill team trying to go in and I assume deliver the decisive strike. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be the one I was yeah, thinking. People should uh, write their own and uh, maybe write in and tell us what they come up with or go in the Facebook group and write down their ideas. Um, I'd certainly like to hear about them. Yeah, definitely. Send us a series of um, Facebook posts, get them in the group, let's see them all. I'd love to see the sort of things people come up with for Link's Battles and also anything that people come up with for their parallel battles, which is the next thing. So, I like parallel battles. I think there's. Probably most people that have been in the hobby for a couple of years have probably played a parallel battle in some way or shape or form and not even realised it because I think it's something that's quite an ambitious thing that a lot of hobbyists want to try at some point. I know I've played some Apocalypse games that have had similar concepts before. So, again, this is a series of suggestions on how to sort of like connect... Two games, sometimes different systems, 
sometimes not. But whatever. occurring at the same time. But yeah, but they're, they're meant to be immediately influencing each other. So there's kind of like two schools of thought with how you do it. You either have your larger game, be it 40k or apocalypse. Um, you don't have to be a larger game, I guess, but just you have your primary game. And at some point during that game, there's a, um, an instance where that game is like paused. You then go off and play the secondary game and the results of the secondary game then influence something in the primary game when you then return to it and then carry on from that point. Or you have the real time parallel games where you actually have multiple players playing two games side by side and more often than not in that case the result of the smaller or quicker game then has an effect on the larger longer game but at the point that that smaller game has been concluded which means it could happen at any point in the bigger game whereas i a game i played was the opposite it was um i was playing a small size horus heresy 40k game and there was an enormous game going on behind us of six players with titans and warlords and stuff and every time a titan misfired and didn't hit its target, you rolled for one of the tables going on around it. Uh, and if you rolled a one, that table's getting a macro cannon to the face. <laughs> as soon as we heard everyone go, stop, we're doing a scatter. We're like, oh god, I want to live. Excellent. I know um, one thing that I once, I once played in that was very ambitious was um, a Games Workshop store um, here locally. It was um, Games Workshop Wakefield. And um, this was back when the store had two floors to it. So it had like the shop floor and then it had like a veterans room upstairs with more tables. Yeah. And there was a big apocalypse game going on downstairs. But alongside that, there was a, um, a, a game happening upstairs that basically had, <laughs> it had like these massed army of, um, imperial artillery. So anything that was a proper artillery tanks, so things like, you know, basilisks. Manticores, yeah. all the Forge World things, all sorts. Anything that was like long range artillery. These things have like the 220 inch plus ranges and never mean anything. <laughs> um, these were on a separate table upstairs and they were under assault by, I think, like Converserkers or something, some sort of chaos forces that were trying to chew their way through the artillery whilst the artillery were dutifully settling their lives and firing their shells at the big game that was happening downstairs before they were destroyed but <laughs> they used a system of walkie-talkies so the players downstairs had to physically request over the radio their targets and coordinates to the players upstairs and I like that. that's good yeah <laughs> and then depending on how accurately the information was conveyed would depend on where the artillery actually landed and took effect on the larger game downstairs um, so that, that was a really fun way of doing it where it was just each round there might have been less artillery firing because more of them have been chewed up by the berserkers but then they might yeah. be particularly accurate one round or they might be horribly scattering elsewhere because I think there was um, I think the thing they did with it was when the request came in for like targeted coordinates it would then be like the next battle round or something is when the round, the rounds would land. So it could be that the targets are no longer there or there could even be friendlies in the area by the time the artillery lands. Good stuff. And then, yeah, there's basically um, a series of scenarios that they suggest on 
um, concepts like the one we've just discussed is very similar to the death from above scenario where you're playing a standard 40k game or similar and after X turn um, you can either go away and play a kill team game to gain control of like an orbital satellite or something or you can have two other players playing a simultaneous game and um, once the kill team game has been determined then that faction has control of this orbital laser that they can then fire down into the main game um, but the I quite liked the security artifact one where you basically played it's sort of like your standard get the relic 40k game but the relic doesn't start on the table the relic starts in like a secure facility and the two players have to rush units to get to the facility to then contest it so then yep. once they get there and get units in you would then play a kill team game to get control of the relic and then whoever has it at the end of the kill team game is who then returns it to the surface and gives it to their allies to then try and take it away in the play game. Good stuff. All very exciting bits that can make for some really good games. Yeah, it's just... you, you can get a group of game, big gamers together to play for a whole weekend. These are the things you can make wonderfully uh, fun and complex, uh, I would imagine. <clears throat> After a few beers, it becomes anything but. Yeah, that's true. I, I think you could play a, a, like a good game with something like um, a speed wire or something, where you're playing a bit like the ambush mission, and anything that escapes from the ambush mission appears as reinforcements in the main game. That's cool. Yeah. I still... I still you could do... The, you remember you were talking about the mission where the, t- the table's moving, and it's like on a path as you're trying to get away from impending doom. That, yes, you could have that go through the middle of another person's game. Wouldn't that be hilarious? <laughs> There's an abstract rule for that in one of the Vigilus books, right? The speed while running through. Yeah, I think that's where it was. Um, That's very slowly buffering. Lads, the orcs have turned up. We'll have to do some thinking and see what we come up with. Sounds like you've got an idea for making even more terrain, Tony. 
Oh, I always do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, that's that is linked games and parallel games, which is cool. Um, and then the next thing in the book is the challenge missions, but honestly, I've not had a chance to delve into these properly because it looks like there's a lot of cool info here and. I'd really like to do an episode on them themselves in the future because um, they're, they're more representative of these one-sided battles and I think that is um, a really good sort of change of pace. So the whole point of it being a challenge mission is that it's going to be inherently difficult for one person to even win and it's about trying yeah. to prove or challenge yourself to try and win it despite the fact you're playing an incredibly uphill game. So seeing how they balance that approach to like mission creation I think is going to be worth a deeper chat about so i think we'll we'll look at that in another episode sounds good to me um so that is all of the primary narrative play stuff we're going to look at but we'll be back in a second taking a look at the new schemes of war for millstrom of war and match play so we'll see you all again in a moment guys Guess what, guys? They added deck building to Milsham of War. Hooray! Hooray. <laughs> it's funny that we were just discussing it last episode, and I'm really pleased that they brought it in. Uh, me less so. Deck building, I think, as I said in the last episode, is not my favourite part of the game. But it's perfectly valid. It's good to see some uh, new rules in there for those that enjoy playing. I like a good deck, I do. I'm a fan of a good deck. But this is the nice thing for you, Dave, if you want. There's nothing stopping you from playing with all 36 cards. You can use the... No, no, absolutely. Yeah, you can use this method of deploying the tactics cards and using them in the new Maelstrom missions, using this method, without having to worry about deck construction. You can just go, I'm just going to use my whole deck. No, and the really interesting thing that came out of the discussion last episode with Jake was um, the fact that... um, we have all used these cards, and we all use them in different ways. And, and what we've got in the book again here is, is, is um, just another way to use them again. Um, so it, it's all good. It's all variety to, to bring to the game. So even though it's not my prefer, preferred play style, it's still, um, it's still an interesting new set of ways to use these cards. Well, I think that this actually... I think this works as a really well-refined version of the concept of Maelstrom of War. Because there are plenty of people out there that refer to it as Drunken Commander. And uh, I I sometimes am inclined to agree, because I sometimes... I think of Maelstrom sometimes as a bit like the the Benny Hill version of 40k, because I just see units going... Just running backwards and forwards between units and objectives. Battlefield Commander stuck at the back of the battlefield, just picking his nose, going, that one. That one. No, that one. No, that one again. You just got units I've changed like, my mind. I don't want it anymore. Yeah, the amount of time. Actually, do you know what? Go over there and kill a psycho. But their tower, they don't have a psycho. Eh, that's not my problem. <laughs> yeah, um, and this helps refine that. So, like we we talked at length last episode about the advantage of being able to pick the cards in your own deck, and I think my suggestion at the time was perhaps only removing up to twelve or so at most, giving yourself still like twenty plus cards um, to work with. But actually, the the as written, they, they've opted to go for a minimum of 18 cards. So in fact, that's only half of the tactical deck is required, which means if you really wanted, you could cut out all of the objective holding cards, or conversely, you could cut out all of the kill things cards. So you can really customise 
the strategy that you're wanting to go for with an army list. Yeah, I think I prefer the idea to, like you say, then this great swab deck of cards that you draw randomly from, and uh, let's face it, one in two cards, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, um, but even on top of that, the new methodology for how you play with them is really well thought out, I think, and um, makes it a lot more intriguing, because previously in Maelstrom missions, the sort of standard method of generating is that um, you would... Um, basically draw until you had three tactical objectives at a time that were active. Yeah. Um, and then you could discard up to one of them at the end of the turn. Which means that sometimes you'd draw three objectives for a turn and all of them would just be unachievable that turn or they'd say would be realistically unachievable. You're like, oh yeah, hold the center. Well, I'm not going to be able to do that because he's all over the center. You know, kill someone with combat. Well, I'm playing with Tau right now and I don't have any dedicated combat units. <laughs> Whatever. Um, but the, there's a new sort of like method to actually even activating your objectives so that they're in play. So in addition to constructing your deck as much or as little as you like, um, at the start of the first battle round in all of these new Maelstrom missions. So this is like a universal method that's used across all six of the new Maelstrom missions. But to be honest, I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't really go back and use these retroactively with the older ones. You just replace yeah. the method of generating um, the cards in that mission with this new method. At the start of the first battle round, each player shuffles their objective deck and draws five tactical objective cards. And if either player is not happy with the initial cards they have drawn, they can choose to place them all on the bottom of their objective deck in any order and draw four new cards. So you're drawing a hand of five cards, and if you want, if you don't like them or they all seem really difficult, you can actually mulligan them away and go for four different, the next four. So yeah. that, that should hopefully, that's a pool of potentially nine cards to just get off the mark with. So you shouldn't, have any slow starts you should always have something you can be achieving you think they've got a poker game going on somewhere at games workshop <laughs> possibly <laughs> um but these five cards these are not your active ones this is just in your hand of tactical objectives which is almost a new concept to the game like there's this like middle zone you've got deck you've got your active tactical objectives and you've got the non-active ones that are currently in your hand at the start of your turn, um, put tactical objective cards from your hand into play until you have three in-play tactical objectives, um, or there are no more cards left in your hand. Sure. A tactical objective card is considered to be generated when it is put into play, at which point then it's an active objective. When putting a tactical objective card into play, place it either face up for both players to see, or face down. Its details kept hidden from your opponent until such a point as it is either achieved or discarded. No player can have more than one face-down in-play tactical objective at any point. Interesting. So it's interesting that you can have at least one hidden mission, like one hidden objective at any one time. So even then, your opponent can only see two of the things you're currently trying to do, plus you've got a hand of extra objectives. There's some real sort of like 
manipulation going on now of what information you're giving your opponent and what you're trying to achieve, which makes it a lot less drunken commando. You've also more got more control over which, which points you're trying to gain at what point. Uh, exactly. Which gives it more flavour of some of the, the board games. Uh, I'm particularly reminded of uh, Ticket to Ride, where you, you can choose to pull the additional tickets out. Uh, maybe you've got more control and more cards than that, actually, but... Um, you you got you got that decision about whether you and when you play those uh, objective cards, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, rather than now randomly drawing, hold objective two, then hold objective six, then hold objective four, you might instead go, well, this turn I'm going to hold objective two, and next turn I'm going to hold objective six because it's just just next to objective two. It's just like the next one along on the board, and then maybe I'll go for objective four because that's even. That's next down the line. So then you can almost have your purposeful advance, but at the same time, you're still ticking off these objectives as you get to them. Then sort of pretty standard stuff for achieving your objectives. But importantly, they've updated it so that at the end of the morale phase, you can discard any of your in-play tactical objectives. So it's not just you're not just limited to one. So you could just throw three objectives down with the intention of just binning them all off at the end of the turn because none of them are really helpful and none of them are going to be helpful. So you can... Yeah, against... and with your hand being decisively smaller than traditional um, in most cases, uh, you'd be more compelled to because if you've got an awful hand, uh, you're more likely to get some better cards in the next uh, do-over. Exactly. So again, it feels like there's a lot more control at any given time as to what you can be achieving, so you'll feel less just given unachievable things at awkward times. Um, and then on top of that, there are f- uh, three new universal stratagems available during these Maelstrom of War missions. So both players have access to uh, for 2CP, reprioritize, use this stratagem at the start of your turn, discard up to two tactical objectives from your hand and draw a new tactical objective for each card that was discarded. So that's important because it's from your hands, not from the ones in play. Yeah. And being at the start of your turn, it would also be before you put um, the objectives from your hand into play for the turn. So it's giving you a chance to reprioritize before you determine what you're going to do that turn. Uh, for one CP, tactical foresight, use this stratagem at any point during the turn. You can look at the top three cards of your objective deck and choose to put each back. You can choose to put each back on either the top or bottom of the deck in any order. You can only use a stratagem once per turn. So basically, <laughs> that, that's basically like scrying in Magic the Gathering. You're just manipulating the top card of your deck and whether or not you still want it to be the top card of your deck. And then uh, for two CP, the last one is determined push. Use a stratagem at any point during the turn. Select up to three tactical objective cards from your discard pile and shuffle them back into your objective deck. You can only use this stratagem once per turn. Now, I think that's particularly relevant if you're only playing with an 18-card deck when you consider that five of them will have been drawn, so there'll only be 13 cards left in the deck when you're, or less, when you're potentially recycling these in and then shuffling. So, could you imagine getting, like, Slay the Warlord? Cool, I killed him. Get the three victory points. I'm going to reshuffle that back in. Two turns later, draw Slay the Warlord. And because he's already dead, 
there's just an additional D3 victory points. Mm, that can be cheeky. So you think there might be some auto-takes for a lot of people? Not auto-takes, but I certainly think there are some clever options that people could work with. For yeah. example, it, it might You're be... Capturing early. objectives that, that you really can't lose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, oh, that objective that's in my deployment zone that's going to be hard for people to get rid of or get hold of even. I'm just going to attempt to hold that again for a further two victory points. I think it's really cool. It's I do think this is a a better, more refined version of Maelstrom of War because I think I've, I like Maelstrom for that sense of anything can happen. Like the game is in flux. It doesn't feel like yeah. it's such a foregone conclusion or that you're just trying to repeat the same thing every turn to sort of min-max your primaries and secondaries or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it draws it in that little bit from being too drunken, you know, too, too much just running around like headless chickens. And it does give an, an additional dimension to adding character to your army. Like oh. you said, if you, you drop all of the objective holding items, you know, that really could work for a, you know, close combat chaos army. They're not bothered about the objectives or about... I know, can see that for Tyranids. Like, yeah. why do Tyranids want to hold an objective that often? They don't. They just want to swarm things and eat it. But then again, yeah. with your guard, I almost think it'd be characterful if you took out the kill things objectives of guard, because... They're almost not even interested in actually killing stuff. They're just interested in holding the line. Just staying make, alive. Yes, yeah, staying alive. They're suggesting they can't with all their flashlights. No, I'm suggesting it should be a, a, an expectation, but whilst killing <laughs> the enemies, they should be critically uh, holding the I God players are very good at managing their expectations of their... Uh, their <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, I think there's some really cool stuff and um, interesting approaches to this now. And the the six new Maelstrom missions, they basically all use the, the standard structure of a Maelstrom mission, except that they all have um, one twist on how drawing or achieving the objective cards are manipulated for that mission. So, for example, there's um, covert manoeuvres. At the start of each battle round after the first, if there is a player with fewer victory points than their opponent, then for the rest of that battle round all their objectives are placed face down. So basically, whoever has whoever's currently trailing on victory points, all their objectives become hidden. And obviously that yeah, can... You then get like, the element of surprise. Yeah, and that can flip backwards and forwards throughout the game if they then take over on victory points. Their opponent's stuff is all then hidden. So then yeah. you don't know what they're doing. I think that's a cool idea. Um, ambitious Surge. At the start of each player's movement phase, if that player has any objectives or cards in play, their opponent must select one of them, and if that objective is achieved in that turn, or the subsequent turn, it is worth one additional victory point. So it's kind of like your opponent is goading you to try and do a certain objective. Like, yeah. go on, kill my warlord, try it. If you do, it's worth an extra victory point. But am I now making that a honeypot trap? Am I now enticing you to overcommit to try and kill my warlord just because yeah. it's worth an extra victory point right now? And there's all sort of variations on that. Um, what have we got? A territorial control. At the start of each player's turn after the first, the player that controls the most objective markers, they can draw an additional objective card from their tactical deck. So if you're controlling objective more objective markers, you get an extra objective to do. Cool. 
And, and they're all variations of that, which I think is cool. But I think um, it'd be really good to go back and retroactively apply this method of drawing and scoring uh, tactical objectives to some of the older uh, military missions, because I think some of those could be really interesting now with this new deck building mechanic. Yeah. Because I think some of those... Yeah, because the missions are designed... The missions are designed along for the uh, the new schemes of war format, isn't it? In the book. Yeah, but there's no reason why you couldn't use it in some of the older ones, and some of the older ones would really benefit, I actually think, from um, yeah. using this method. It'd yeah, just like we some new life into them. Picking out some of these rules and mixing them in uh, with, with other missions is always makes a, something new and a bit of variety, especially if you've got some narrative about why it's like that. So it's really good. Don't let one book tell you what to do. That's what I say. Yeah, exactly. Pick and choose what you want from all the different books. Um, and that basically is chapter approved 2019 in a narrative nutshell. Um, what a nutshell. Apart from the bits we'll return to in a future episode, right? Okay, so yeah, we've not even touched on Spearhead or on Challenger missions. So, you know, they're going to have their own shows in the future. So there's still plenty to get out of this book, and I highly advise anyone to pick it up if they haven't. Like, if you're a match player player and you pick this up primarily for update points and stuff, don't underrate the other things that are in here. Give them a try, and there'll be some really fun times to be had with them. And then conversely... If you've not picked this up because you think it's just an update on match play points, it's really not. There's way more stuff in here for narrative stuff. And I think this is, certainly from a narrative perspective, this is the best chapter of they've done so far. And if you're a match play player, congratulations on getting to the end of episode 11 of Narrative World Game <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> that is very true. You've been doing very well. We like you. Well done. Maybe, maybe you're not such a match play player now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we've converted you. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, that was the last of the releases from Games Workshop right at the very end of 2019. So, I think we'll jump across now to a, a small section on some of the news and new releases coming up for the very start of 2020. So, we'll be back in a second, guys. Do you enjoy awesome narrative 40k games as much as we do? Do you wish there was more narrative play content online you could enjoy? Narrative Wargamer aims to be more than just a podcast. Our goal is to become a wider platform for narrative 40k content creation. Right now we are just starting out, but you can already find 40k articles and gaming posts on our website at narrativewargamer.wordpress.com. We also aim to develop the Narrative Wargamer YouTube channel with narrative battle reports, custom missions, expanded gameplay rules and much more. If you would like to see awesome content like this, then please support the show via the Narrative Wargamer Patreon page. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and expand our range of future content. You can support the show from as little as $2 a month and it really is the best way to show us you are enjoying our work and are excited to see more. With your support, Narrative Wargamer can become the number one provider of narrative play content from the Grim Dark. And we're back, guys. So we've got a small slew of new releases, including a little more insight on the next Psychic Awakening book, The Ritual of the Damned. Um, so we know that it's going to include basically updated rules for the Dark Angels, Grey Knights and Thousand Sons. And I think most people are expecting that this is going to do for Dark Angels what Blood of Baal did for Blood Angels. 
and probably really reinvigorate um, the range, um, like rules-wise. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I've already got a Dark Angels army. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm looking to put to finish, finally put together a Blood Angels army, and I've been quite, uh, quite excited, quite uh, excited about Blood of Ball, So I'm quite looking forward to this next one as well, which will be done. Yeah, Blood Angels didn't need the help that they got. I've got a few friends who play Blood Angels, and they are very difficult to fight. So I'm excited to see what they do for Dark Angels. Well, I'm hoping that perhaps the Deathwing and the Ravenwing are going to finally get some sort of looking um, with regards to just modernising as it were because the trouble with being an all bike um, company and an all Terminator company is that bikes and Terminators are kind of outdated in a world of Primaris but that said at least he's coming with the first new Dark Angel Primaris captain which is fun and looks really cool and has a helmet with big wings which I love I love the big wing towers well he's got a helmet with big wings if uh if you put it in his hand, but for some reason it doesn't fit on his head with big wings. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be ways to make it work, but um, it's interesting. That from a story point, he is the first Primaris Marine to be inducted into um, the first company and into the Deathwing. So he's the first Primaris who's privy to the inner circle and the uh, troops of the Dark on. Angels. Yeah. Cheery banter that they have. Wasn't he, um, did I read, was on Warhammer Community that he's one of the sergeants from the Dark Vengeance box set who got promoted? Or did I dream it? I may have dreamt it. Um, I, I think he has been mentioned in, um, a Black Library novel or two before, maybe. I think, I think that might, he's not like, um, uh, Tor Garadon, who's a brand new dude, and the, um, the Salamanders chap who are just kind of like no, brand I, new in the film. I don't, th- I don't think um, Agatax is actually brand new. I think he was also uh, previously included in um, the Salamander novels, but he was a tactical Marine before. He was a mini Marine before and he passed the Rubicon. Where, oh, look at him doing well in the world. Yeah, whereas I believe that this guy, is it Lazarus? I think it's Lazarus, isn't it? Um, I think Lazarus, yeah, it's a very dark angel name. I think he's meant to be... Um, like an, an ultimate founding Primaris, like so he always was a Primaris, um, but he's yeah. achieved the rank of uh, Master um, within the chapter, so that's cool. Um, it's funny because I, I really like the look of like the Green Wing Dark Angels, the whole robes and sort of wings and the teardrop sword blades and all the rest of it, and I think he's a really really cool model. Um, yeah, and I hope you know the Dark Angels get some cool stuff to go alongside him. Um. So I just looked him up on Lexicanum because I couldn't remember either. But I think uh, Lazarus is uh, actually crossed the Rubicon Primaris and used to be a firstborn. Uh, has he? Fair enough. Yeah. Cool. But it was the only way to save his life. So rather than a dreadnought, they made him a Primaris. Yeah. Well, look at him. Um, so yeah, so that's cool. Like. Uh, and then obviously Grey Knights are getting some cool new stuff. It sounds like they're going to get some cool new monofaction rules. Probably, hopefully, full smite them or similar. Um, and the Thousand Sons apparently are going to get rules for the nine um, Legion cults from back in the Heresy. So that's going to be Which cool. Which is interesting. Yeah, seeing that translate to the uh, the Rubicon Marines in uh, the Rubric Marines even um, in the forty first millennium. I think is going to be interesting, um, especially if Araman gains like um, 
the powers of the... Was he the divination coven that Vingaraman was? Can't remember. But yeah, that's going to be interesting. Might inspire me to paint some uh, cherry red uh, Thousand Suns. Well, speaking of inspiring, that new statue of the living saint for the Sisters of Al, I want one of those so my sees a death table. I want one, but I want to desecrate it. <laughs> like, just have its head cut off and at the base of it. Oh, the the, just cover it the no longer living saint. Exactly. And just cover it in Jinko icons and like have Gene Steelers crawl all over it. Oh, put, that would do it for me. Put two well, not because you're inspired. Not because you're inspired by the pile of skulls at her feet. Little column A, little column B. <laughs> How about the um, the devouring saint? Yes, the devouring saint. Very good. <laughs> um, and small note on that new chapel is the fact that it's actually coming with some wider Imperialis building sections to allow for octagonal building layouts, which is something... Which is nice. Yeah. It's a small thing, but that is so nice because it's something that I've actually... Um, sort of built up myself um, on my own buildings, but you have to kind of fill in floor space to make it work. So I've got it all like covered in rubble and stuff. But there's a yeah. bunch of tables at Warhammer World that use like octagonal layouts for the Imperial City States, and they look amazing. Yes, I'm excited to see that in the flesh. Uh, and then finally, something that you're not supposed to see, but if she sneaks up on you all, all the same, is there's a brand new Shadow Sun. Um, so Commander Shadow Son of the Firecast, uh, she's getting a brand new model coming in the, I would assume, the Greater Good, her Psychic uh, expan- uh, Awakening expansion in a couple of months. I would put money on it, quite happily. Yeah. Um, yeah, she does look quite nice. It's really weird, because the first, so the first time I saw the image, it was on the, like, the banner image for the open day, where it's like the spliced yeah. free images from, like, the different systems. And, I honestly thought there was a weird Photoshop clipping effect that had happened on Shadow Sun because it's like she's got two sets of arms where she's got like hands on top of hands. Yeah, Yeah, my friends were talking about this as well. She does apparently have four upper limbs. Yeah. It it looks really weird because, say, when I first saw the image, I thought it was like, is that some sort of like multi-layer image of her and the back layer is like out of sync so it looks like it's sort of like double layered yeah, on her arms. an image on top of an image yeah image on top of an image sort of thing but no that is what it is like so I'm weirdly a little bit sceptical about it from the images I've seen but then again I've been proven wrong on a few occasions when I've seen a model in person um, it looks really nice the one, the one that got me the most recent with this was the um, the tree man for Blood Bowl so when I'd only ever seen digital images of him, I thought, eh, that looks a bit meh. Like, it doesn't really say tree man to me. Like, he just kind of looks like a bit of a weird tangle of bark and armor plates, like, nailed into it and stuff. But then I saw it in the cabinet of Warmer World, and I did not realize how big that tree man model is. And the scale of him makes him work. He actually looks really, really good. And I did a complete 180 on my opinion of that model from seeing images of it to seeing it in person. And I have a feeling Shadow Sun's going to be the same. I think it's going to work when I see her in person, but weirdly, there's just the whole double arms things just doesn't sit right with my eye. At least not. You got a problem with, uh, with models with more than two arms, have you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are coincidentally filthy v- Xenos scum. 
Except Ox, obviously. She's she's got at least four shoulder pads as well, and it must be uh, really handy to have so many arms. <laughs> Very handy. You're welcome. <laughs> but yeah, like she's she's cool, and I think one of the other deceptive things is how big she is now. Like she almost looks like she's like crisis suit sized, which when previously obviously she's just been a small like stealth suit. Um, like her head very deliberately looks small compared to the rest of her body because. Obviously, that's just the pilot. It looks a lot better portion, doesn't it? Yeah, it looks it like looks she's... Like a little piece sticking out from this enormous mecha. Yeah, it looks like she's actually in a, a battle suit as opposed to, like, the skin tights or, like, body glove suit that the stealth suits can yeah. be. So I think that's an interesting take. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing her on the tabletop. And I like the little touch that she's leaping off um, the, like, ruined Aquila. I think that's really nice yeah. as well. Um, I'd love to see how she stands up against Shrike, like the pair of them on top of their like fallen rubble and their jump packs. Yeah. Um, Cause again, I've not, the yeah, again, I've not seen Shrike in person yet, but I know that the Primaris Marines, they never seem overly big on a paint station, but when you stand them next to some other 40 K models, they are quite big. And then yeah, they are quite nicely proportioned. Yeah, so then when Shrike's got a huge jump pack on his back as well, I imagine Shrike is actually quite a beefy model. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a Primaris on my uh, painting desk stood immediately next to a very old plastic Rainbow Warrior from first edition. And um, yeah, barely comes up to his shoulder pads. So uh, next to something like this miniature as well, I think that's going to be, he's barely going to come up to the top of the Aquila. <laughs> well, that's obviously all the cool new stuff that's coming out in the next couple of months. And if you are at any point interested in picking up Shadow Sun or the Sisters Chapel or the Psychic Awakening, any of the whole nice new shiny things that's going to be coming out from Games Workshop in the next couple of months, then I have some news for you. And that is that the podcast is now officially affiliated with Element Games. So we actually have affiliate links and everything now. So if you do want to buy any cool new stuff, if you go over to Element Games via the links in our show notes or on the Podbean website or even the Narrative Wargame website, any of them, if you want to go buy some wonderful, wonderful discounted Games Workshop products over there, then we will get the credit for that and that will help us here on the show. (laughs) So please, if you are listening and you enjoy buying 40k, which again, I would assume at this point into a podcast, you probably enjoy buying 40k then why not help us out and uh, use our Element Games affiliate links for that. And uh, they'll be appearing yeah, now. In, by two hours in at this point, and you're thinking, what the hell are these guys talking about? Then? Yeah. You're doing work. good work. <laughs> it must be a long commute. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like we're gonna, moving forwards now, you know, we're always going to have that sort of affiliate link and banners and things. And uh, it, they are great. I mean, that's, that is where my missus got all my new imperial scenery from uh, on Christmas. So, you know, even send your partners there or anyone that buys you armor, send them via some of our links and help the podcast out that way. We would greatly appreciate it. And as would Element Games, and so would your hobby collection. So everybody wins. Except maybe family members' wallets. But who knows? They make you happy. We're not worried about them. They're yeah. fine. Um... So, whilst that was a somewhat spotlight for Element Games, uh, I think we'll just jump quickly into our actual community spotlights. And for once, we've actually all got someone worth worth mentioning. Um, So, Dave, why don't you start for us? 
Uh, yeah, one's one's a bit of a trail and one's a spotlight. Um, I had to after Christmas went to and saw my outlaws in in North Wales. Sorry, my wife's parents in North Wales. I shouldn't call them outlaws, though they'll probably never hear it on this this podcast. <laughs> Um, well, that's where you're wrong, Canoe, because our special guests tonight are. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, never. <laughs> but um, I, while we were there, I, I managed to pop out for half a day with my wife uh, into Chester, which is, is fairly close by. So the Warhammer store in Chester, give a shout out because I was able to get my uh, Tech Priest Grumbindal from there. Um, just after oh, the holidays, you picked that up. Was, uh, nice. Yeah. And the, the staff in there, they were setting up for an event, but they were all really helpful. Even I got my wife on their Wi-Fi so we could look at what her cousin's army, latest army was, and he plays in Shrewsbury. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just really friendly staff and helpful in there. And uh, Is uh, Warhammer uh, Chester, is it still down some stairs in a basement kind of thing? Because I was yeah, there probably yeah. about six or seven years ago now I popped in. Yeah, absolutely it is. Um, that's, that's it was nice then, and I'm sure they're still doing great work now. Yeah, no, no, it seemed to be. So I was impressed with them. Uh, so well done, Warhammer Chester. Thank you. Um, and then the other thing I was going to say is I'm off for a tournament uh, next weekend, uh, but it's a Blood Bowl tournament. It's the sixth one I've been to, uh, the UK Team Championship. This year there's going to be 68 teams of four players, so 272 players all playing six games of Blood Bowl over two days. That is a lot of Blood Bowl. It's going to be just as great as it's been in, in previous years. So uh, I'll probably talk about that next time briefly, uh, because uh, events like this one, uh, and like the, the Necromunda you went uh, to, although it's a, a slightly different size tournament, are always great fun and even though it's not 40k um one of the fantastic things about it is you're going with a standard team it's a resurrection format it's coming back every 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 new game it's, it's refreshing in the same way but you get a fantastic stories coming out of there um fantastic memories of, of games and how they've gone uh, come out of events like these and i'm sure i'll have a, a couple of tales to tell when i come back next time have a glorious time and the best of luck thank you and york's quite a good place to go drinking so i'm sure we'll get a couple of beers in Perfect. Yeah, so then, um, so my community shout-out is, it's a little bit of an unusual one, but it's actually the Warhammer Combat Cards mobile game. And the main reason is because I have been playing a lot of that mobile game over Christmas. <laughs> and it is awesome. I actually really enjoy it. Um, it was funny because it was originally, I have um, I have like a, an eight-year-old brother-in-law. <laughs> and um, over Christmas... He, whenever I'm around it, um, his, um, his house, as it were, um, he always asks to play on some of the mobile games I have on my phone because he knows I'll have things like, um, I'd like Blitzball and stuff on there at one point. So some, some of the like Warhammer based games. I didn't have any on my phone at the time. So I thought, ooh, well, I know one I've heard about recently is Combat Cards. So I'll just download that and play it with him for a little bit. And, um, it's fair to say that I have now played it way more than he has. <laughs> So it's really fun. I've been enjoying it. Um, it's basically uh, like a little fun, almost like rock, paper, scissors combat system where um, every game is played with like a little deck of cards and all these cards are models. So it might be like, you know, a Carnifix, a Zonfrop, a Hive Tyrant. Um, they're all the actual sort of like, I guess, heavy metal painted versions of the uh, models um, and they've all got their stats and they all basically um, fight on either ranged melee or psychic and so everything harms other things based on its stat in that ability um, and they basically just battle it out so you know if you're playing against a tower deck it's going to be really good at ranged combat whereas if you're playing with a thousand suns um, set of cards you're probably going to be a lot better at psychic 
Uh, so it's based on the card game where your card has three stats, uh, melee, shooting, psychic. Yeah. Or something like that. And then you elect a card, your opponent elects a card, and then you pick which skill you want to use, and then you take their card. Lots of back and forth. It's a really fun, ferocious, quick game. It is. It's brilliant. And so, yeah, I've played... Uh, I've literally played hours of it now. <laughs> and uh, it's funny how it just... It really draws you in and entices you to sort of build up um, your like deck um, that you've been working on. And it, it's all based on different factions. So you can play as, like, you know, Nids, Chaos, Orcs, Tau, Imperium. Imperium's actually divided into basically Astartes and non-Astartes. And I actually think the non-Astartes decks are quite fun because it means you get to use... Things like Custodes with Astronautarum, with Assassins, with Mechanicum. And I think it's a really fun deck. I'm enjoying one at the moment with um, uh, Commissar Yarrick leading it, which is a lot of fun. So, um, And it's completely free to pl- uh, play as well. Like, yeah, like most mobile games, there are entirely optional um, microtransactions in it, but I haven't paid a penny for it and I've got hours of entertainment out of it. So I would definitely advise anyone... If you're looking for a fun little mobile game and you like Warhammer, go check it out. That's uh, Warhammer Combat Cards. Can't grumble at that. Is that AOS? Is that Android and iPhone? Uh, I can only assume so. I'm playing it on iOS. Um, I don't know cool. if it's on Android. but I, no. I've seen it advertised on my phone, so I think it should be available on Android as well. I imagine it probably is on both. Um, awesome. So then, Chris, what about your shout-outs? My shout-outs, uh, one is selfish, one is selfless. So the first one's going to be the Unrelenting Brush Commission painting. That's me. I'm fully queued up until the start of March, uh, but I'm looking for projects over the summer. So if you're interested in having anything built, painted, anything around there, uh, check out my Facebook page at the Unrelenting Brush. I've got the limited edition Sisters of Battle Box that I'm willing to commission paint for someone who wants it. If you'd like to know more about Ooh, that, nice. get in touch. Uh, then the second shout-out is the selfless one. I have a friend called Adam Cottamol who I played D&D with. Uh, sadly, he was stricken down with very sudden, very, very severe bowel cancer. Uh, at the, He's in his mid-30s uh, with a young family. Uh, so I've asked the guys if it's okay, and I'll drop a link in the show notes. If you could go and give anything for him and his family, that'd be fantastic. He's had some great news in that all his tumours seem to be uh, shrinking in size which is amazing, but we know uh, people who've lost family to cancer or friends to cancer that it can quickly change good and bad. So any pennies to his care and his treatment and his family would be appreciated. So thank you very much. Oh, definitely. It's, 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 a, it's a great cause. So, you know, anything we can do to help. Absolutely. Um, and that link will be in the show notes with the show, right, uh, Tony? Yep, I've, oh, yeah, I've dropped right. it in our chat, so you can pop it in there for me and that'd be great. Yeah, I'll make sure that it gets in there. Not a problem. Um... And yeah, guys, I think that is a good solid two hours of quality narrative 40k content. So if you've enjoyed it, then please definitely give it a like. Tell your friends about it. Um, don't forget to go back and make sure you listen to everything we've ever done if you want more from us. Um, and uh, yeah, like I say, it's, it's really great to see the show doing so well and people enjoying it. And um, see, so yeah, we're We've now got that Element Games affiliation, and I actually feel like the show is really, really starting to gain some traction and take off now. So, um, and well, hopefully, there's a whole slew of fun new things for you to try out in your narrative games of 40k. And if you haven't done, go out and buy Chapter Approved because it is brilliant, and um, there's a ton of good stuff in there. So, 
Until next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play 40k.